Broadcasting from the Investor Hour studios and all around the world, you're listening to the Stansberry Investor Hour. Tune in each Thursday on iTunes, Google Play, and everywhere you find podcasts for the latest episodes of the Stansberry Investor Hour. Sign up for the free show archive at InvestorHour.com. Here's your host, Dan Ferris. Hello and welcome to the Stansberry Investor Hour. I'm your host, Dan Ferris. I'm also the editor of Extreme Value, published by Stansberry Research. Today, we'll talk with portfolio manager entrepreneur Harris Kupperman. We know him as Cuppy. Cuppy always has some good stock ideas to share, and he comes at the market with a really smart, contrarian viewpoint. This week in the mailbag, longtime listener and regular correspondent Lodovic H. wants to know one sector where you can make a thousand times your money in 10 years. I'll give you two. And remember, the mailbag is a conversation, so talk to me. Call me up, leave me a message on our listener feedback line, 800-381-2357, and hear your voice on the show. In my opening rant this week, hey, are you really a long-term investor? I'll give you a little story about that. We'll talk about that and more right now on the Stansberry Investor Hour. Okay, let's, let's give a little example here and talk about what it really means to be a long-term investor. So I got a bunch of books recently, and one of them is called Dot Con, The Greatest Story Ever Told by John Cassidy. It was published in 2002 at the bottom of the dot com bust. And I've just dipped into it. Haven't read it. I've just dipped into the prologue. And he's got a whole bit about uh, the company now called Booking, Booking Holdings. The ticker symbol is BKNG. It used to be Priceline, okay? Priceline.com. And he points out the thing, you know, IPO'd and then it went to like, I think it IPO'd in March of 99. It went to like $150 and then crashed to like $2, okay? And so he's telling the story of the bust, you know, after the thing has crashed $2 from 150 And he paints a picture of a company that everybody should have known was not worth, I think it was like 20, 20 odd billion at the peak. And that's right. You know, the thing was way, way overvalued. And indeed, in their first year, they sold something like $35 million worth of airline tickets. You know, it's an online booking site. And, and they paid $36.5 million for those tickets. So they were losing money. And that didn't include the money they spent marketing and paying people, which took the total loss to $54 million, right? So this was a loss-making company and the market cap was way too high. It was, a you know, the dot-com bubble had everybody way too excited about the internet and way too excited about any, any company with dot-com in the name. And, and he's right. And, the, and there's probably some great anecdotes. You know, he's, a, he, he's got a whole book here of, of stories about the, the, the dot-com bubble. But I'm going to take issue with this because I, as, actually, as a journalist, this, he did the right thing. He put out a book about the dot-com bust and made it seem like you should have known it all along and told these obvious stories at exactly the moment when you can sell a book like that. But as an investor... The time to talk about the fact that it's a loss-making company in a bubble is when it's, you know, in 1999 or 2000 at the peak, when it's $150 a share, right? The, when it was $2 a share, that's when you start talking about, hey, wait a minute, you know, maybe we have something here. Because from that price, you know, it's $2,200 a share now. So they did something right at some point. And if you look at the financials, like... You know, it's like billions of dollars of operating cash flow a year with, you know, just tens or hundreds of millions of capital expenditures. So, you know, it's a phenomenal cash gushing business. Of course, it got murdered in 2020 by the COVID episode. But, you know, overall, travel has come back. I think travel is like, you know, airline airline bookings are, are above pre-COVID levels. So it turned out to be a phenomenal business. Like it was a phenomenal bet. When this guy was putting out this book at the bottom of the dot-com crash. It's like it's like writing about Amazon at that time and saying, you see, we were right all along. It was a terrible bet. And of course, it's one of the great, you know, greatest bets you could have made ever in your life. This is by Amazon. You could have bought it at the peak of the dot-com bubble and held on today and gotten a huge multi-bagger out of it. So the question here is like, how are you doing investing? 
It's good to avoid things at the peak. Don't get me wrong. I've made the point several times that even the best businesses, the cash-gushing great businesses are terrible deals at the peak of a bubble. You know, they can get creamed 50, 60, 80% just like everything else. And I usually use Cisco as the example because it went from 80 to 8. <laughs> yeah, and it was a cash gushing great business. It continued to be one. It continued to grow and be a great cash gusher. But, but you know, terrible bet when it was 80 bucks, right? And it hasn't gotten back to that level. So you would have had to, you know, if you had bought it at the peak and you were a long-term investor, you'd have had to buy a lot more, you know, an average across the years um, to come out ahead on that. And And that's really the point here. The point is, there's a, t there's a couple points. First of all, the time to talk about stuff being a bad bet, a loss-making thing that's, a, that's way too overvalued is when it's way too overvalued. But when it sinks to $2 a share, that's when you say, hmm, this could be something. This could turn out well, right? You have to, an investor has to tell the, himself the right story at the right time. And it has to be the opposite of what journalists and people who sell books and people on CNBC and all over the internet are telling, right? Everybody's telling a story of how great stocks are and how great companies are and how great the results are and how the world's opening back up and, you know, uh, the vaccine is making everything better. And, and, and people want to say, well, you know, so the overall market's expensive. Barron's had an article, the overall market's expensive, but you know, the average stock is not overpriced, whatever the case, you know, the, the, it's still the truth. I think that the S and P 500 is more expensive than it's ever been in history. And we're going to get a massive bear market or a huge correction of some kind at some point here. And that's, you know, it's when you tell these stories and when you're, you're, thinking of, about things in terms of fear or greed. I, I was talking with someone just yesterday. We shot a little video presentation. It's going to be available soon. We'll talk about it. And uh, and one of the guys who was filming, you know, who was doing the audio, he said, wow, you talked a lot about fear and greed. That's really important, isn't it? And yeah. And, and people are, it's really fear all the time because at the top, greed is just the fear of not getting in. It's the fear of lack right? It's the fear of loss. It's the fear of not getting rich along with all your friends um, or not participating. I don't even think it's the fear of get, not getting rich. I think it's the fear of not participating and feeling like you're doing something different from the crowd. And at the bottom, of course, it's the fear of losing even more. So fear controls a lot of people's actions at a lot of times when it shouldn't. And you got to learn to get around that when everybody's scared at the bottom because, you know, We'll just stay with Priceline. When Priceline sunk from 150 to two, that the thing to do there was not be afraid and to learn to look at the value and the business proposition and what the growth prospects were. All right. So, you know, what kind of an investor are you? Are you really a long-term investor or are you being dominated by fear? fear? Fear of losing more when things get cheap and, you know, fear of not participating when they're way too expensive. It's a good question to ask yourself. In that same light, I have a, a quote about long-term thinking from Warren Buffett. It was Money Magazine, 1987. My quote of the week, um, it was actually quoted by Simon Reynolds in his little book, Thoughts of Chairman Buffett, which is a nice little book of Buffett quotes. And the quote is, I wouldn't buy any stocks I would not be happy owning if they stopped trading it for three years. If you can find companies that you will want to be an investor for in five or 10 years, you'll probably do reasonably well. I'd go even farther. You can do really awesomely well if you stick with them, you know, for five, 10, 20 years, right? Equity is a long-term, it's long-term capital. It's permanent capital. You put your equity in, and the business takes it and runs with it and gives you a return on equity. That's what, you know, over time, your, your, your returns should, should converge to that number, that return on equity. So you get a great business that's doing 20, 30% on equity and stick with it for a long, long time. And it continues to do those numbers you should do. You should make that much. And, and if you're willing to, like Buffett says, if you're happy owning, if this stopped trading at all for three years, you know, that that's a long-term investor and that's how you'll do reasonably well. All right. 
Let's talk with Cuppy. Let's talk with Harris Kupperman. Let's do it right now. Last week, I invited visionary tech analyst, crypto guru, overall smart guy, my friend Eric Wade, onto the show. We talked about an array of topics, including the volatility in cryptos. If you missed last week's episode, you can catch it at InvestorHour.com. But today, I want to let you in on something Eric just discovered. It's this super trend fueling one of the biggest transfers of capital the world has ever seen. Right now, the smartest minds at Tesla and Apple are working to upgrade American energy using this radical innovation that Eric is calling Freedom Fuel. It could lead to the single largest creation of wealth of your lifetime worth $16 trillion. Imagine an energy innovation so powerful that it will strengthen our nation's electric grid, help replace gasoline and U.S. dependence on oil, fuel the economy, and power every home in America. At the moment, it's rolling out to more than 35 states from California to Texas to New York. Get the full story at usafreedomenergy.com and find out how this technology is set to explode 250,000% by 2027, according to the World Economic Forum. That website, again, is usafreedomenergy.com. Today's guest is Harris Kupperman. Harris Kupperman is the founder of Praetorian Capital, a hedge fund focused on using micro trends, we'll talk about that, to guide stock selection. Harris is also the co-founder of Mongolia Growth Group and has been the CEO and president of the company since 2011. Additionally, Harris is the chief adventurer at adventuresincapitalism.com an investment blog uncovering unique opportunities around the world. And let's face it, man, that's why we love having him on the show. Cuppy, welcome back to the show. Glad to have you again. Hey, thanks for inviting me back. So I, you know, like I said, when, when I read your introduction here, let's talk about micro trends because I'm pretty sure I know my listener well enough that as soon as I say micro trends, he's going to go, what is that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think everyone knows what global macro is. That's uh, interest rates and currency. And that's a very competitive place to play. Uh, there's a lot of really smart people and most of them get it wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what I like to look at is uh, second and third tier trends, stuff that people aren't really looking at where uh, it's not priced in. So if you get it wrong, you get your money back. And if you get it right, you have multi-baggers. And a lot of these are pretty obvious trends. Uh, you know, it's stuff that when I tell you the trend, you'd say, yeah, that makes sense. That's happening. You know, you're not guessing what the currency rate is six months or a year from today or interest rates. You're just saying that's in motion. That's going to stay in motion. I can see it. And then you figure out uh, how do you express that view through uh, public securities where uh, you don't have too much risk. You know, usually I'm trying to get here right when the inflection starts. So uh, I'm, I'm early in the process. I'm buying it cheap on cash flow or balance sheet or whatever else it is. And then I stay with the trend either until the trend gets discovered and valuation uh, goes to fair value or something changes in the trend. Okay. So I love, I love what you had to say about global macro. Super competitive, lots of smart people, and most of them get it wrong. I mean, that's <laughs> hilarious to me anyway. It's a good joke to me. And I want to talk about that a little bit because your, one of your recent blog posts was really kind of making fun of one of the big, you know, sort of global macro targets, which is the Federal Reserve. And you were talking about, you know, there was a press conference and some dots were moved around on a piece of paper and, and the chairman of the Federal Reserve, you know, threatened a few basis points of yield in a year or two, you know, like, like it has any meaning at all. It's just right. a story he's telling. Yeah, it's a story. He's trapped. They can't raise rates because it'll crash the economy. They can't stop stimulating because it'll crash the economy. And he's the buyer of last resort for uh, U.S. government debt. He really can't pull back. He can bluff it lower and he smacked gold for $100, which, uh, you know, makes it look like, oh, there's no more inflation. Or he can, you know, threaten the stock market. He can move the dollar. He can do some things at the margins. But in the end, he's kind of trapped. And 
let's say they do raise uh, rates 50 basis points. Like, what's that going to change in anyone's life? Uh, you know, if you're a yield curve trader and you have some levered book, you're probably going to blow up because every time the Federal Reserve does something, some over levered, uh, you know, financial institution blows up. But when you look at the real economy, which is where I invest, uh, it's not going to matter. Let's talk about one of these trends, if you want, uh, one of these micro trends. Um, so I'm 40. I just turned 40 this year. A lot of my friends are um, my age, give or take a few years. Everyone kind of put off having kids because we we're too busy with work. We all like living in our 800 foot condos. You know, mine's a little bigger. Uh, but, you know, we like being in the city center, going out every night and having fun. And suddenly uh, kids start popping out and you don't fit in the house. And so my friends are all uh, realizing they're going to have to move to the suburbs because it's too expensive to buy a three bedroom in downtown. And this is a trend, you know, if you look at it demographically, which is what drives a lot of these trends, uh, people my age had their kids 10 years later than the last generation. And so it should be obvious that household formation and, you know, single family home demand, it's all pushed back a bit. And now it's coming. And there's a huge uh, demographic move of people out of the cities into the suburbs. You have people leaving uh, high tax uh, Northeastern and California states, and they're moving to you know, lower cost states, they're moving to places with better job opportunities. There's actually a lot of uh, population move right now in the United States. And uh, you know, I think when I tell you this, this all makes sense. Uh, I mean, the data is there. The, the question is, you know, will it continue? I think it does. And then how do you make money? And you know, where, where there's the gap right now is in low-income housing, uh, I mean, affordable housing, I guess you call it. Uh, you know, the, the home developers like building million-dollar homes because they're very profitable, but they haven't been building uh, entry-level stuff for my friends. And you know, I think you play it by owning the guys that make the components. I don't have to guess which state wins. I don't have to guess anything. I just have to guess that uh, the guys who make uh, you know, siding and make uh, vinyl windows and make a roofing supply and make uh, plumbing, all this stuff that's needed in a home, especially on the lower end, those guys, I mean, they, they have so much demand, they can't fill all the orders. So, you know, that's the best place to be in uh, business when, you know, you, you have unlimited demand, you just can't figure out how to ramp up fast enough. Uh, you know, the, the problem in business is when no one wants your stuff. And so these guys ha are going to have some problems uh, ramping up and hiring people and there'll be some margin pressure and all these other problems. But you know, the demand is there and it's going to keep going. And I don't think this trend changes if they raise rates 50 bips. I don't think it changes if they raise rates 100 bips. You know, in the end, what does that mean? It's $100 more each year, each month on your mortgage. Like, I don't think that's going to change anything because you can't fit two kids in a single bedroom apartment anymore. You know, it's, it's just, it, it'll, it'll solve itself. And so these are sort of trends I like. And you know, I don't think anyone would ever push back and say, yeah, Cuppy, you know, this trend isn't a good one because I think it's a very good one. You know, it's more a question of uh, how long it's going to last and what's the valuation and is it priced in? And those are questions that I think educated people can debate. And in so much as you believe it'll continue, it may be a prediction, but it's really not a prediction, right? You're just looking at what's happening. Well, it is continuing. Uh, I think you had a trend in motion that started a few years ago, actually, and COVID really accelerated it, uh, especially the demographic uh, movement, because work from home means you don't have to live in a high-priced city. Uh, you can live in the suburbs, you commute in one, two days a week now. And so you can get a lot more real estate for the same price. And so it, it's really changed the dynamic for families. Um, and I don't think it's going to go back. I, I think people really like uh, the, the new rules. Yeah. Yeah. What's not to like? That's right. And you get to live in a place that I, I've seen exactly what you're describing. I've seen, you know, people moving. We, we actually moved. We moved from really? the city. Yeah, we moved from the city. We moved in, in March. We moved from the Portland area where they were like, I mean, we, we were actually concerned. They were burning, you know, they were burning things every night for like, you know, six, seven months on end. Well, that's another reason to leave. Uh, I think those sort of problems are not going to end. I think they're just starting and they're going to keep ramping up from here. Yeah, that's what we were afraid of too. And so we kind of, we came back from where we had moved from previously, which is a rural area. I mean, it's, you know, small, small, small town, like, you know, a four digit population kind of thing. So, and we feel we're, there was a palpable sense of, you know, kind of sitting the suitcases down and breathing a sigh of relief when we got here. And we don't regret it at all. But yeah, 
Yeah, I see a lot of people doing this. And a lot of people, you, you also mentioned, you know, you can get more real estate. And I noticed, especially young people wanting to do that. So so we have this trend solidly in place. You got a name for me or, or what? No, I just demographic migration. You have people who are basically heading south from the north and they're heading, you know, somewhat to the middle. But in the end, you just have people moving around. And, you know, there's another one I got for you. I think the state of Florida is going to do quite well. They were the first ones to uh, cancel the mask mandates. They were the the probably the best of all the 50 states. Um, you know, it's a booming state. The economy is absolutely booming. It's zero tax. So there's a lot of companies relocating. I think you want to be long Florida for a very long time. It's been a you know, strong bull market for decades. So it's, this isn't a new thesis. But I think it's accelerating now. And so you want to be long Florida. I'm long a company that owns a lot of real estate in Florida. Um, you know, I don't think any of these are particularly uh, contentious theses. It's more that, you know, people just aren't thinking on their heads. They're, you know, looking at other stuff or they're trying to guess at stuff when they're looking at macro. You know, I just have no view on interest rates. I don't know which direction the next 50 bips is in the 10 year. And I, I don't know what the FX rate's going to be. I, I like the really low hanging fruit, the easy ones. Would you call what kind of investor would you call yourself? Would you call yourself deep value or no? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm deep value, but I'm an inflection investor. There's a lot of cheap companies out there in this world, and we've known they were cheap for years and years, and they plotted along, and the earnings don't grow, the earnings don't shrink, you know, there's asset value. It's just, it's a company that's kind of a, asleep, and then something changes and it starts prospering. And you know, sometimes the change is in the, you know, the business sector itself that the, the company's in. You know, housing was pretty terrible for 10, 12 years coming out of the GFC because they overbuilt housing. And coming out of the GFC, everyone downsized. They all went into apartments. It was just a bad place to be. There were a lot of cheap companies, but it was a bad place to be. Um, you know, so there's a lot of cheap stocks that everyone looks and says, yeah, that's cheap, but no one cares. You need that uh, catalyst, that inflection. And like I said, you, the inflection could be in the sector itself or the inflection can be uh, some corporate action that unlocks value. It can be, you know, a new CEO with a new vision for the company, uh, you know, a new capital allocation policy. There's lots of things that can uh, inflect the business or at least, you know, what the thing I care about, which is the share price. But, you know, just finding a cheap stock doesn't help. But, you know, once you find what your theme is, uh, I'm not going to play unless it's really cheap. And when I say really cheap, you know, I'm usually buying, you know, huge discounts or replacement value or I'm buying single digit cash flow. And I'm not even buying like sort of single digit. I'm usually below five times cash flow looking out a year or two. Wow. So you are mostly, it sounds like, buying really, really small companies. No, I, I, I started my career buying small companies because the small companies were the ones that were undiscovered and unknown and unloved. And a lot of these small companies, because of the illiquidity and the lack of analyst coverage, they're actually very good businesses growing very fast. And you could buy a rapidly growing consumer products company for five times earnings. But that's changed. Uh, you know, there's too many uh, people out there on Twitter or on, you know, some of these blogs like, Stuff gets discovered a lot faster now, so you don't see that sort of stuff. What you see more is the stuff that is just forgotten about because it's boring. So you know the the advantage is finding that inflection and getting there one or two quarters before it starts showing up in the financials, and then staying with it as it gets noticed and explored. Because remember, most of the world is, I mean, most of the finance now is done kind of with a quantitative approach. So as long as you know quarter over quarter things are getting better. They just keep buying it and then it gets into the indexes and then they keep buying it. You end up with a lot of people that have to keep buying it. So once it gets going, these trends in motion tend to stay in motion and keep accelerating. But no, we're not looking at small companies. I'd say the sweet spot for us is kind of in this uh, 200 to about uh, 2 billion range. And really it's around three, 400 million, kind of right at the cusp of uh, Russell 2000 membership is really where I see the most opportunity because you get escape velocity the year after when it gets added to the Russell. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I, I've, um, I've heard similar from, from others, but your emphasis on the micro trends, like nobody else tells me they're, they're looking for micro trends. Let's talk about another one. Would, it, would you consider, I know you wrote a blog post about ESG 
and and you you said that it stood for energy stops growing, which I thought was funny. Uh, tell me about that. Well, I mean, I, I think you, you just gave the punchline away. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay, um, right. No, look, uh, ESG. Uh, I think is kind of a tax on society in a way. Um, and what it's going to do is it's going to cut off capital to a lot of industries that are really desperately needed. Uh, so ESG doesn't like uh, energy, for instance, you know, it doesn't like uh, oil and gas. Well, that's great. They take a fundamental view on oil and gas being bad for society. And, you know, that, that's not something I want to debate here. What I will tell you is that demand for oil and gas is going to go up next year. So if they don't produce more of it, you can have an energy crisis. And I don't think that's open to debates. Um, you know, if, if they're going to cut off uh, other industries that are vital to society, uh, the price will go up because the demand is still there and there's no supply response. And you can look at lots of sectors of the economy that are probably going to suffer and you know, potentially suffer badly. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not here to debate what's right and wrong. I'm, I'm here to make a bunch of money for my clients. And if uh, you have some people out there that are focused on cutting off the supply while the demand keeps growing and the demand might even accelerate with all the government stimulus, then I, I want to be long the thing that they don't want uh, produced anymore. <laughs> um, you know, I think one of the real uh, key moments in this whole uh, debate, and it's kind of been going on for a while now about ESG investing, is when BlackRock decided that uh, they're going to throw their hat in the ring and they're going to stop just trying to, you know, become an asset out, out, aggregator where, you know, their business model is get a lot of assets, earn some fees, and they're going to take a political stance on certain issues that the management felt fondly about. And one of them obviously was energy. But if you're going to go out there and fire board members who are trying to do their job and help their company produce more oil, then no one's going to produce more oil because you know, Larry Fink at BlackRock has a lot of the votes. He's kind of a swing guy. And if he partners with CalPERS and a few of his other buddies, they'll uh, fire all the board members. And um, so if you're a board member, you, you got to be pretty scared because it's a pretty cushy job being a board member. They pay you way too much money. You get some stock options. You don't really do much of anything. So I, I see a situation where CEOs go to these board members and say, let's go drill some more wells next year. The price of oil is up. And the board members say, no, 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 we can't do that. Larry Fink's going to fire me. <laughs> so um, I, I think these second order effects are going to last with us for a long time. And I think uh, it'll be surprising the ramifications. And if you could think through these ramifications, a lot of money would be made. Uh, all throughout all sorts of industries that ESG doesn't like. I mean, look, look at thermal coal. Uh, you know, people have been telling me that it's uh, going to disappear. Uh, they've been telling me this for years. Uh, here we are, and thermal coal is at 10-year high prices because they stopped producing enough of it. The demand's still there. I mean, I didn't even think thermal coal would go to 10-year highs, but <laughs> you know, here we are. Yeah. Um, yep. And so you look at this in a lot of sectors, and you know, probably thermal coal demand keeps growing for another decade or two because you see the power plants they're building, and you know, it, it's great to you know tell the banks to stop lending to thermal coal producers, and it's great to to have, uh, you know, the, 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 the shareholders vote out the board members. But, you know, in the end, the world needs more thermal coal next year. And it has to come from somewhere or the price will go up to fix the problem. And, you know, you, I, I think the price will go up to fix the problem. Yeah. It, I've interviewed a fellow named Rick Rule who, who knows a lot about energy. And he's, he's long uranium for similar reasons. He says, you know, two things are going to happen. The lights are going to go out. Or the price is going to go up, and you know which one. <laughs> He's is. probably right. Yeah. Now Rick's a very smart guy. Um, I own a little bit of uranium participation, uh, just a little bit. Uh, but you know, one thing I, I want to say, and I, I think this doesn't get enough attention, is that if you have a view that the price of commodities going up, there's a lot of ways to express that view. Um, you could do something very basic, like uh, buy the physical commodity. You can buy uh, the futures. You could buy options in the futures. You can buy something like uranium participation because the futures aren't very liquid. You know, it's an entity that holds uh, uranium physical. You could buy producers. You can buy uh, service companies. I own a lot of energy services companies. There's a, a whole ecosystem of ways to express that view. And I, I feel a lot of people express the view the wrong way. Um, what's, what's the wrong way? Well, they, they go buy little junior uranium stocks. I mean, that seems like the wrong way to me. Uh, you know, you take a lot of risk. 
Um, you know, most people aren't geologists. I mean, I'm not a geologist. I don't know what I'm looking at. Uh, most of the guys are lying to you because they need capital. Most of the money goes into the ground because they drill holes to produce press releases. I mean, that, that's the main product they produce. They never produce any uranium. Um, you know, there's a lot of dilution nonstop. And uh, you're, you're, when you're buying a junior company, you're taking a very uh, concentrated view that at some point in the next six to 12 months, the price of uranium is going to go much higher. And this company that no one's ever heard of will have leverage to that because other people will show up and gamble on the, you know, some 20 cent stock. Um, you know, you have the most upside. Those 20 cent stocks become $2 all the time. I've seen it many times in my career. So, you know, I don't want to tell you this, that's a dumb way to do it. It's just the wrong way for me. Um, you know, I think when it comes to uranium, if you really think uranium is going to 100, and I don't know if that's the right number, I'm just naming a number, well, the uranium participation is a triple. And a uh, triple is pretty good if it happens in a two or three year period. And you know, the, the, the trade-off is that uh, I don't think uranium is probably going down much because during the worst of the bear market, it was in the 20s. So, you know, you're risking five bucks, $10 at most on the price of uranium, plus, you know, a little bit of uh, carry because, uh, you know, there's some fees to pay at uh, UPC. So you're really not risking that much to the downside if nothing happens. And most likely in these sort of theses where it's a supply demand imbalance and there's really no catalyst. And in the case of uranium, there is no catalyst. Uh, one day they'll work through the oversupply and then the price will go up. Uh, in, in a situation like that, you don't really want to be betting on the when. And uh, when you're in one of these little companies that has to keep diluting you, you're really betting on the when. And then finally, you know, a lot of these little companies, they're never going to build the mine. There's actually enough mines mothballed today that if they just turn the mines back on, there's a glut again. I mean, that's how we got into the spot we're in today. There's a glut. So, you know, these little assets have no real strategic value because the guys who produce this stuff have existing assets to turn back on, or there's assets floating around that can be turned on in a year or two. So I just don't see some mine that takes 10 years to build ever being, you know, the fulcrum security, but that doesn't mean that you can't just uh, gamble on it. And like I said, 20 cent stocks become $2 stocks and $1 stocks become $5 stocks all the time. But you know, they, they also go to zero and you end up with a billion shares outstanding. So, I have a very nuanced way I think about this stuff. And to me, I don't want to lose money because the number one rule of investing is don't lose your money. So I, I just like the lower risk play of uh, UPC. Uh, when it comes to something like oil, I mean, there's a super active futures contract. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff you could do with that futures contract. You could buy call options, which is what I've done. You could buy uh, futures, which I've done. But I'm out a few years in the curve. I mean, if you look at it, the front of the curve is at 73 right now. We're talking on a Tuesday, but um, go out a few years in the curve. We're in the mid fifties. Um, kind of same thesis as with uh, UPC during the worst of this one, you know, the front of the curve went negative I and mean, think about that. It went negative. The, the back of the curve was in the forties. So I'm kind of risking like 10 bucks in my head, you know, at least until the back of the curve becomes the front of the curve. So, you know, as long as it's six months or nine months or a year deferred, and I'm out, you know, a few years, I'm risking 10 bucks in my head. And, you know, the upside could be 100, maybe it's 200, who knows? I, I like those sort of trades. I don't need to buy, a, you know, small cap E&P and hope that the geology works, hope the capital allocation works, hope that the pipeline basin differentials don't blow out, the hedging program works, that there's, there's no new taxes on oil or anything else. Like I actually think government interference in the production of oil is why the price of oil is going to go up. So if the government is, if your thesis is the government's going to interfere, why do you want the guys to get interfered with? It makes no sense. And this is, sorry, I'm rambling, but um, I just think there's a better way to do all this stuff. No, no. You, you, I like your rambles. They're good rambles. And the point, but the original point you make is great because look, we can, we can, debate about the difference between, you know, uranium participation or a tiny little mining stock. And we can say, well, you know, technically speaking, it's not wrong, but it sure is a hell of a lot riskier. And it's a totally different bet. It's not really a bet on uranium price. You know, and let's face it, like you say, there's 5,000 of those little companies and there are maybe a hundred of them that anyone should ever go near, right? Literally. I think that's about literally true. 
That's yeah. that's the right. I'm not sure it's five thousand uh, uranium, but it's five thousand junior miners. No, no, definitely. Junior, yeah, that's what I meant. Junior miners are worldwide, right? So five thousand jun, you know, tiny little mining companies worldwide, and there's maybe a hundred you should ever go near. But you make a good point, though, in maybe. just saying it's the wrong way. Yeah, maybe, maybe a hundred. You could buy the the you buy the physical, and I, I mean, I just think back to the last cycle. I mean, look. I started buying gold and I own a bunch of gold personally, but I started buying gold when it was trading at 300 and here we are and gold is 1800. It's gone up six times and GDX has gone nowhere. <laughs> you know, it, it kind of tells right. you how this works. I mean, it had zero leverage in any way to what happened to the price of gold. Um, you know, in the end, uh, gold mining is an earth moving operation and you're, kind of beholden to the price of diesel and steel and labor and taxes and regulations. You're beholden to everything except gold. If you were bullish gold, like I was, you should have just bought a bunch of gold at 300 like I did. Or you should have, you know, put on some sort of trade, you know, some call spread trade. Or There's a ton of ways you could play in one of these assets that has a liquid option chain to uh, give yourself a whole lot of upside leverage. Um, you know, without too much downside risk. And, you know, the, y your ability to craft weird spreads is, you know, the only thing holding you back. Well, that's that that does hold a lot of people back, I'm sure. But you don't need to, right? What we're saying is really, ultimately, you don't need to craft weird spreads. You, you can just be long and in a much more conservative, safer, direct way that gets you straight to the commodity rather than, you know, some roundabout riskier thing that most people don't know anything about, right? Right. And this, this applies to every one of these trends. I mean, identifying the trend is the easy part. I, I, you know, let's go back to housing we just talked about. I mean, I think everyone knows that uh, there's a demographic move going on. Uh, then the question is, how do you play it? And that's where you have to go into your toolbox and figure out, you know, the best way to do it where you're taking the right ratio of uh, risk and upside. Um, you know, a lot of people bought home builders, which uh, always bothered my mind. I mean, that's probably the worst thing you want to own. You have, um, <laughs> a, right. well, it's super capital intensive, which you never want. Um, you have a business where you're locking up land. I mean, basically they have call options on land and they're specking over the next few years on the price of land in the next two to three years. So if you time the cycle wrong, you end up with call it with, uh, you know, land purchase options that go out worthless. You end up with built inventory that no one really wants, uh, you know, they, they, you have these boom bust cycles that oftentimes a lot of the home builders go broke in the bust cycle, or at least they take massive impairments. Uh, you know, right now you have this funny scenario where times are so good for home builders that uh, they can't get labor, they can't get skilled employees, they, uh, the component pricing is up. I mean, everyone's talked about the price of lumber, but, you know, valves and everything else are up too. So they, they, you know, they, they promised uh, Mr. Johnson that he's going to get a home in six months and suddenly the price of all the pieces went up and they're going to lose money producing that home. And it's, it's kind of crazy when you think that when things are good, uh, they still lose money or at least they get squeezed on the margin side. Like, I, I just don't want to be in an industry like that. And, you know, one of the advantages I have is I've been doing this for over 20 years. So I've seen a few of these cycles and I, I've learned, you know, who makes money and who doesn't. Uh, you know, the guy building the homes is not the one making the money. They're taking all the risks with uh, only a little of the upside. And, you know, they're, they're making some money. I don't want to tell you the wrong thing, but the guy who's going to make the most money is the guy who's making that pipe fitting where, you know, suddenly four home builders say, you know, you're only producing X number of units this week. We all want it. And they say, who will pay most? <laughs> you know, and it's just yeah. a better place to be. Yeah. Levi Strauss outfitting the gold miners. Exactly. Or the guy who owns the land, because when you have the scarce commodity, people pay up. Uh, you don't want to be the guy with, uh, you know, 180 day uh, build window. We have to time all the inputs and uh, the sale price. That's just a terrible place to be. Yeah. A little, little more color on our move. We, I said we moved in March, but we didn't get into our house until the first week of June because they kept pushing us out farther and farther and farther. There's a new house. And, you know, you can't occupy until you get the certificate of occupation from the local wh whoever. And so we were waiting on appliances, right? The home is technically legally not occupiable, so they told me, without the appliances in it. So we're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. 
And, you know, I guess, I guess I'd rather be the appliance maker at that point than the home builder because he committed to a price back in February. And, and my, my home builder son said, Hey, uh, you know, this guy, he's already, he, he could have gotten 50 grand more if things had worked out better and he waited until now. So, but it's not just the 50 grand more, his cost might've gone up a hundred grand. You know, he doesn't know what the cost of labor or lumber. I mean, you can't, you can sort of hedge it, but not really. Um, there's actually a really good uh, survey out uh, last week. Uh, it's put together by the U.S. government, our tax money at work, uh, surveying builders, and they're actually suffering quite badly. It's funny. You have uh, the, the best year for housing in uh, 13 years, and builder sentiment is awful because uh, they're all <laughs> losing money at this. Yep. They're paying a hell of a lot more for lumber, and the, you know, my my stepson is telling me, sure, in the futures market, you can see lumber prices falling, but that ain't anywhere near. He says, that's nowhere near me yet. So they're still paying through the nose. Yeah, absolutely. So I just want to go back to you know the point I'm trying to make. Once you find your trend, you got to really think it all through as how you're going to play that trend. And a lot of times you can play that trend uh, with a lot of upside and really minimal risk. I mean, the company I'm playing in uh, the components uh, industry for housing, I mean, I bought it, I think, at about three times uh, this year's cash flow. I bought it last year. And, you know, there's just not that much risk at that sort of cash flow number. Uh, you know, the stock's, uh, it's up three times since I bought it. But, you know, I think it might, uh, you know, go up another three or five, depending on how many uh, years this cycle goes. I mean, it's still a single-digit cash flow number. And, their biggest problem is they can't find enough workers to run the machines to produce windows and siding and you know gutters and all the stuff they produce. Nice. Up 3x, maybe got another 3x in it. So that's the goal. I mean, people focus too much on, hey, I found this stock at 20, I think it's going to 25. And you know, if you're only trying to make 25%, you're taking too much risk. Every day I show up to work, I'm saying, what can I buy that can go up three to five times in the next two years? Because every day you put money out to, to work for you, you're taking a lot of risk. And if you're not getting those uh, five baggers, uh, it's not going to make up for the mistakes you make because you're going to make mistakes. You know, feel free to give us a name if you want to or not. You know, we, we understand some people don't want to give away their book. But how many names are we talking about in your current portfolio? So I run a very concentrated book. I, I really do believe that, um, you know, you, your best ideas should be expressed with the most size. There's really not that many great ideas out there. Um, and if you're not watching closely, you're going to make mistakes. So I usually run with six to 12 themes. So a theme could be an individual stock or it could be a basket of stocks. But um, I'm usually running with six to 12 themes. And my top five themes are usually 50% of the portfolio and sometimes as much as 75% of the portfolio. Now, I like to play really big. And you know what that means is it's going to be volatile. It means that you uh, have to have a strong stomach because you can have some bad down days. But if you believe in what you own, you kind of just close your eyes and you know, don't really think too much about it. But it also means that when you're right, you're really, really right. And you know, for the past uh, year and change, we've been very right around here. Nice. Yeah. A lot of people had a fantastic year in the past year. Oh, it's been great. <laughs> it's been surprisingly good. If you want some names, I mean, we talked about housing. I, I would say, you know, the name to look at is St. Joe. They're uh, one of the largest landowners in the state of Florida. They're uh, focused on the panhandle where uh, housing is uh, a bit cheaper, uh, you know, in the interior areas. Um, you know, the, the, they're focused on two of the fastest growing counties in the United States. And up on the ocean, they own basically uh, what is the Hamptons of the South. Uh, you wouldn't believe the pricing, you know, the prices down there, but it's, it's the 1% that are coming from Atlanta and Houston and New Orleans. And, and I believe the Federal Reserve will keep interest rates suppressed and let inflation run hot. And so what do you do when uh, mortgage rates are really cheap and inflation screaming? You buy houses because your second home is going to appreciate 25% a year and you're going to fund it at three. It's a great trade. Uh, so I think a lot of people are going to buy second and third homes, and I think it's a great place to be. Plus, a lot of people want to retire to the panhandle because, you know, their primary source of income is their investments, and no one wants to pay tax on their investments. Uh, you know, once you're mobile because you're retired, you're going to go somewhere with low taxes and beautiful beaches. And so I think Joe is going to check both these boxes and be a home run. Uh, 
Q2 earnings were up 120%. Q2 revenue was up 120% year over year, which shows you what sort of growth they're getting. And they're getting uh, great pricing power on this too. So that's my biggest possession. They have um, uh, a great balance sheet. They own uh, 175,000 acres of land. Uh, so you have a really long runway for them to execute. And I think the land is worth a few times today's quote. So you get all the cash flow from the business for free. So that's my biggest position. That's how I'm playing. Uh, it's, it's one of the two ways I'm playing housing. That is an interesting name. I stayed long, St. Joe, too long into the into the crisis years and years and years ago. It was a very different business back then. Back then, uh, the business was really about selling off some lots along the water and hoping for the best. Now the new management team in place, and they're really focused on sustainable revenue and sustainability of the cash flow. So they're building commercial real estate, they're building a hotel and office and multifam. So it's really about the sustainability, but it's also about uh, taking their land that's a, you know, a few miles inland and you're not gonna sell it as ocean land, but how to make that, those, that land into communities that people want. And they've created the Margaritaville Retirement Community, which uh, it seems really popular. People wanna go uh, be retired and be drunk and stoned all day. And uh, you know, it, 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 they, they, they put their first year of uh, inventory on the market and it all sold out the first day. Uh, there was actually a lottery to sign up to buy one of those homes. And you know, once again, I like being in businesses where the demand is infinite and the problem is they can't figure out how to produce it fast enough. So they'll figure out how to produce this faster. It, it'll take a year or two to ramp up, but the demand is there. And, you know, anytime you can take an acre of forestry land that's worth about a thousand bucks and turn it into an acre that's worth uh, 500 to a million, that's a good return on your capital. And they're going to just keep doing that for all their acres. Nice. Thanks for that. You got any more you want to share with us? Let me think what else. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, core long possessions, um, I'm, I'm pretty big in energy services right here. Um, you know, last year, as we know, oil went negative and everyone stopped drilling. And this year, uh, oil is 73 and people are starting to drill. They're just starting because they're gun shy. They're timid. They don't know what OPEC's going to do. They don't know what the price of oil is going to do. They, they almost went bankrupt last time. Uh, shareholders want dividends and buybacks. And so it's, it's going slow. But the important thing is that uh, the red count is going up month after month. And it's, it's up year over year. And what Wall Street likes the most is uh, sequential growth. Wall Street likes uh, when the first derivative is positive and when the second derivative is positive. And so you have growth starting to accelerate now in terms of uh, spending uh, on uh, energy. And so I've gone all throughout the supply chain and I bought a lot of these companies, quite a lot of them went bankrupt because uh, uh, you know, energy production is very capital intensive. We used a lot of equipment and guys levered up and then the demand wasn't there and they went bankrupt. And so they came out of bankruptcy with good balance sheets. Uh, I'd point you to a company called Valeris. Uh, it's the largest owner of uh, offshore uh, rigs uh, in the world. Uh, came out of bankruptcy and it had 100 million more cash than debt. Uh, and you're buying a bunch of equipment for 10, 15 cents on replacement cost. And at the top of the cycle, it usually trades for two to three times replacement cost. And so there's a long way to go from uh, the bottom to this top. Uh, they're slightly cash flow positive at uh, the current uh, contract backlog. Uh, there's not much of a backlog uh, starting next year, but they keep announcing uh, new contracts almost every week. Um, they've cut a lot of costs out of the structure uh, in bankruptcy, but bankruptcy lets you uh, cut costs. That's kind of the point of bankruptcy. So, uh, you know, they have a good balance sheet. They have cash flow. They have uh, some visibility for the next six to 12 months on orders. If oil stays where it is, they're probably gonna get some more contracts and it's probably gonna keep trading up. If oil, goes down, they have enough staying power to make it through. It's kind of like uh, my uranium participation. Uh, it doesn't have the most torque, but you know, you don't need a lot of torque if you think that this is going to trade at uh, two times replacement costs and it's uh, 0.15 now. And you know, I bought mine at 0.1. Uh, you know, that's a 20 bagger. <laughs> you don't need too many of those in your career to, to do a lot uh, of damage. And maybe uh, to take a second here just to give a quick shout out to uh, a little uh, newsletter service I have called uh, Event Driven Monitor, Cubby's Event Driven Monitor. Uh, you can go find us at kedm.com uh, and you can sign up for a four week uh, free trial. But what we do is we flag these sort of corporate events like uh, when Valeris came out of bankruptcy. It came out of bankruptcy and 
you know, bankruptcy is one of those corporate events that creates a lot of opportunity because a company comes out of bankruptcy and all the bondholders, they don't really want to own an offshore energy company. That's not the, the business they're in. And maybe they're not even allowed to legally. So as soon as they have a chance, they sell the shares. And so you have a situation where a lot of guys are selling, there's no investment bankers, there's no research coverage, no one even knows it happens, it just starts trading one day. And so they, they tend to come out of bankruptcy uh, undervalued, especially because management often gets their compensation package, their options struck based on where it's trading in the first couple of weeks. So management keeps their mouth shut too. And so we've seen a lot of these that came out of bankruptcy and, and they've done just surprisingly well, really outperformed the market over the last few years. And so it's one of the, the data sets we track in uh, Kedem. Kedem tracks about two dozen data sets and it kind of flags the most interesting stuff. And so we, we flagged Valeris when it was at 21 and here we are at 29 about a month later, which is a pretty good return in anyone's book. I think there's a lot more upside here uh, still. But uh, you know, I, I would just say, if you wanna start tracking some of these corporate events, go to kedm.com and sign up and you know, give it a test drive for four weeks. But um, you know, I, I think uh, these energy services companies, a few others that came out of bankruptcy, I, I think there's a lot of uh, upside because at $73 oil, people start drilling. And you know, last year there's almost no exploration done. So almost anything is incrementally positive and the market likes a story that gets better over time. And these things, you're still buying equipment at pennies in the dollar because no one believes the recovery is sustainable. Yet when you look at the rig count, it looks pretty sustainable to me. Nice. All right. We've been talking for a while, and it's time for my final question, which is the same final question I ask every guest on the podcast. It's simply, with a single, if you could leave our listener with a single thought today, what would that be? I would say that people come into the market too scared. And they, yeah, they're worried. You'd be amazed how many people I know that aren't professionals, or even they are professionals. And they're asking me, Cuppy, what happens, you know, in this and this? And how are you hedging? And what are you doing? Look, shorting isn't working. Anyone who's been short has been obliterated in the last year and a half. Um, hedges don't work because the market doesn't go down. The government's already told you they will print money and they will prop up anything that happens in the economy. And uh, I don't always want to trust the government, but they've been doing this for 30 years and I think they're going to keep doing it. And I think the lesson that they've learned from every mini crisis is that you step in faster with more uh, firepower and that way you don't even have the first down week. And so everyone keeps telling me, what are you worried about? You know, what are you doing to hedge? How are you shorting? And all my friends are losing money. I'm just standing here uh, long. I mean, I'm not levered long. I actually have a little bit of cash in the balance sheet because I like optionality, but I was view called Project Zimbabwe, and that's because in Zimbabwe, the stock market went straight up. And anytime you have too much stimulus and too much money printing, the stock market mostly goes up. And now I want to be long stuff that goes up. And I'm not scared of anything because I know my stocks, and I know the values, and I know the balance sheets. And uh, it, it stops you from doing dumb things when uh, the market uh, gets a little wobbly. And remember, every couple of months, you're going to have the market drop 10%. That's life. And, you know, once a year, it might drop 20 and every five years it's going to drop by 30 or 40. But if you show up scared all day, you're going to probably give money away, especially right now when the government's told you it's not going down. So you know, I think the thing you should be most worried about is you're not long enough. But that, that's just my personal opinion. Oh, good stuff. That was a great last idea. That was, uh, that was really good. All right. Listen, thanks so much for coming back and you'll, you'll definitely be getting another invite in uh, several months' time. Sure, happy to be on. Thanks again. We'll, we'll talk to you in the future. Take care, talk soon. You know, there are some guests where you just know they're going to nail it. Lots of great ideas, a couple of great stock picks, kind of a different view on some things and a really great, you know, final thought. Um, you know, and, and I know Cuppy is always going to check those boxes for me. Really, really great guy. I really enjoy talking with him. And I, I'm, I'm sh I will be shocked if I get any emails that say otherwise. All right. Let's do the mailbag. Let's do it right now. I've talked about inflation plenty on my show with crazy government spending and frankly, how the government could care less about you and your financial situation. But today I have to share a truly unsettling fact. Thanks to actions taken by the U.S. government, 40% of U.S. dollars in existence right now were printed in the last 12 months alone. 
Let me say that again. 40% of all the U.S. dollars in existence right now were printed in the last 12 months alone. This is astounding. There is an astounding $29 trillion in U.S. debt outstanding. It's, it's hard to even imagine what that means. Let's put it in context. If you made $1 every second, it would take you 32 years to reach a billion dollars. But it would take you another 31,000 years before you reached a trillion. If you make a dollar every second, this is incomprehensible. And yet our political leaders talk about trillions of dollars in new additional programs without batting an eye. And people are waking up to the reality that the government is not interested in protecting the value of your savings. And you should too. There's a brand new interview that you should watch if you're concerned about inflation in the U.S. dollar. Just go online to inflationinterview.com. Again, that website is inflationinterview.com. Check it out. In the mailbag each week, you and I have an honest conversation about investing or whatever is on your mind. Just send your questions, comments, and politely worded criticisms to feedback at investorhour.com. I read as many emails as time allows and respond to as many as possible. You can call our listener feedback line at 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. Some good stuff this week. First is George O. And George O. says, Hi, Dan. I'm a devoted listener. Love your show. And he's talking about electric cars and the environment. He says, There is little question that electric motors are phenomenal. They pull all of our trains, for instance. Electric cars and especially big trucks are totally impractical. The problem isn't the motor, it's the electricity supply that's the problem. Given that a Tesla can go about 300 miles on a charge is impressive, but currently it takes five hours to charge the battery again. For a big semi, the problem can only be greater. I live in Florida and not having AC is a non-starter. Adding this load results in a drastic loss to motor current for the car. I often drive on trips over 300 miles. Contemplate having to stop for five hours to charge your car versus 10 to 15 minutes to stop for gasoline and a bathroom break. I don't think that leads to those current vehicles taking over petroleum-driven vehicles. Love your show. You're my kind of guy. Keep up the great work. Thanks, thanks for your great work, Giorgio. Well, thank you, Giorgio. And I include George just because any anytime anybody has a perspective on something like that, I, I like to throw it out there. So I'm just letting George O's words hang in the air. You know, call us feed, or call us on, on the feedback line or write to us at uh, feedback at investorhour.com if, if you have a comment. All right, next comes Levi N. Levi N says, Hi, Dan, just finished Friday's Digest. Are you a hedgehog or a fox? Really enjoyed it. In the Digest, you wrote, it's absolutely impossible to succeed as an investor without learning to recognize, understand, and control risk. Can you recommend books that address recognizing, understand, and or controlling risk? Thanks, as always, Levi N. For those of you who don't subscribe to anything by Stansberry, all of our paying subscribers get our daily digest. And most weeks, I write the Friday Digest. And my last one was called, Are You a Hedgehog or a Fox? And I talked about those ideas on last week on the show. So Levi's asking about books that address recognizing, understanding, and controlling risk. And Levi, those three things, I stole that from Howard Marks. Those are chapters five, six, and seven of his book, The Most Important Thing. And I've, I've remarked before on how the idea behind the book is that every time he sat down with a client, he said, the most important thing is this. And there were eight, you know, he was saying something different to every client. There were 18 most important things. However, three of the 18 are risk. Okay. So it's a really super important topic. And I got the, the order. The, the order is chapter five is understanding risk. Chapter six is recognizing risk. Chapter seven is controlling risk. So that's your book. Those are your three on that specific topic. Also, I have to say the best books on risk, just thinking about risk from many different angles, are Nassim Taleb's books, Fooled by Randomness, The Black Swan, Anti-Fragile, Skin in the Game, and even The Bed of Procrustes. I'd throw that in there too. Just read them all. He calls it the Incerto, which is Latin for uncertainty. And, and 
they're great. They're incredible. Like there's nothing like those five books. So there you go, Levi. There's 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 some books on risk. Next comes Josh C. And Josh C. says, love your show and the access to your thinking each week. I've been a fan, if not a subscriber, since I subscribed to your real estate shareholder way back when. Wow, that was a long time ago. And so happy to now be a lifetime Extreme Value subscriber. Thank you so much for that, Josh. And Josh has several nagging questions. Hope these aren't discourteous. Not at all. They're not discourteous, Josh. The first one is, approximately how many subscribers are there to Extreme Value? I realize numbers like these are proprietary, et cetera, et cetera. So I can't give you, you also ask what percentage might be lifetime. I, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to tell you that or not. So, but we did do, I just finished yesterday a video presentation that will be available to anybody in the whole world can watch it. And during that video presentation, we did note that there are over 40,000 subscribers to Extreme Value. And that includes everything. That includes the Stansberry Alliance members, lifetime members, just regular, you know, subscribers who who renew each year. And so it's it's over 40,000. Your next question, is there a published bio for Mike Barrett? What other investing coverage does he produce beyond extreme value? Mike contributes in all different ways. Um, he contributes to other publications. He's got a million ideas. Mike is an excellent, he's a good system builder. He runs our price implied expectations model that we use to evaluate extreme value stocks. You know, he's, he's really great at that. He spent his entire career doing bottom-up valuation work on specific assets, real estate, equities, all kinds of stuff. And, and all different kinds of real estate, like everything from raw land to income producing, you know, buildings. Your third question, final question from Josh here is, in the extreme value disclaimer, Stansberry Research forbids its writers from having a financial interest in any security they recommend. Does that mean you're prohibited from taking investments in any of the recommendations? The rules, Josh, are that I can't trade in any of the stocks I recommend in extreme value. But I am allowed, after a certain period of time, I think it's like 72 hours, I am allowed to take the advice of other Stansberry publications. So when, just say, Steve Sugarood's True Wealth puts out a new, new pick, 72 hours later, I can buy it if I would like to. Okay? So I, so, and we put out a lot of stock picks every year, so there's a lot for me to choose from. And I can still like eat, eat our own cooking that way. Many thanks for your years of great analysis and service. Best, Josh C. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for the kind words. Finally, we have regular correspondent, probably the most regular correspondent that we have here at the podcast and longtime listener, Lodovic H. And he just, he's got a great question here. He says, I have a question. I think you'll like this one. When I put a gun to your head, I want one idea, one sector to invest money in. In 10 years, it must have increased at least a thousand times which sector is it and why? Oh, Lodovic, this is tough, man. I, I'm not going to be able to do the like gun to my head one sector, but I'll give you two ideas. Okay. Hopefully that's, you know, narrow enough to get you in the ballpark here. So gun to my head, two, two places where you can make a, a thousand X. Okay. First of all, the problem with this is like to put, you know, $1 in and make a thousand dollars. I can't do that. What I can do is point you to a sector where some of the stocks are are just about definitely going to go a thousand to one. That's the best I can do. I can't, you know, uh, just say this whole sector is going to go up a thousand X. Hopefully you're not looking for that because there's no way I can do that. But, you know, the small cap, nano cap, mining industry. I mean, I've heard stories of people buying stocks for a penny and hanging on until they were 10 bucks. So, you know, and within within a decade or so. So, yeah, you can be like these folks. You know, we've had Rick Rule in the program. He's the best person I know at this. He spent his entire career, decades and decades, being one of the smartest guys in the world at evaluating all these tiny little mining exploration stocks that are usually traded in like Vancouver, London, Toronto, whatever. And I mean, you got to be ferocious, man. You got to be a real ferocious street fighter to play in that space and get it right over the years and make a fortune. So that's it. That's one. 
The other one is you got to find like, you know, the next Amazon. And the way to do that is somehow get your money into some one of these venture capital outfits in California that is looking for literally, you know, the next Amazon or the next Facebook or something. And those are the two that that come readily to mind. You know, if I looked around some more, you know, maybe something like biotech might contain something like that. But, you know, I don't really know if if how likely you are to get a thousand to one over a decade there. Um, and, and that's all I got for you, Lodovic. But it's a great question. I think it's an excellent question, in fact. And thank you for it. So that's another mailbag. And that's another episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We provide a transcript for every episode. Just go to www.investorhour.com. Click on the episode you want. Scroll all the way down and click on the word transcript and enjoy. If you like the episode, send someone else a link to the podcast so that we can continue to grow. Anybody you know who might also enjoy the show, just tell them to check it out on their podcast app or at investorhour.com. And do me a favor, would you subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, help us grow with a rate and a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at Investor Hour. On Twitter, our handle is Investor underscore Hour. If you have a guest you want me to interview, drop me a note at feedback at InvestorHour.com or call the listener feedback line 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. Till next week, I'm Dan Ferris. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive notice of upcoming episodes, go to InvestorHour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email. Feedback at InvestorHour.com. This broadcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. Stansberry Investor Hour is produced by Stansberry Research and is copyrighted by the Stansberry Radio Network.